Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for bookish people, for people who read. You want to reach people who read? On the internet, you want to find those people, get your message out about your product or service, go to litbreaker.com and find out how you can advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Electric Literature, Large Hearted Boy, the list goes on. Litbreaker.com. You can advertise on the full network in one fell swoop. You can also pick the sites you want and do it piecemeal. I should mention that. It's very user-friendly. You have options. Litbreaker.com. This is an online advertising network. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. okay, okay, okay. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Jonathan Herman. He's an old friend of mine and uh, the Academy Award-nominated screenwriter of Straight Outta Compton. Did you see that movie? Did you see Jonathan on the Oscars telecast? Did you see him walking the red carpet? Uh, he and I will be in conversation momentarily. I want to begin by reading some more mail. I've been getting lots of mail and uh, I figure why not share it. Got a lot of letters in response to last week's episode, the monologue in particular, in which I eulogized Mark Balmer, the uh, poet who was killed tragically while uh, walking barefoot across America to raise awareness for the dangers of uh, climate change, for the perils brought upon us by the oil, you know, the oil and gas industry fracking and so on. So, uh, Mark, uh, was taken from us much too soon. And I spoke a little bit about it because he listened to the program and had emailed me a few times over the years. I shared those emails in the monologue and, uh, so on and so forth. So, uh, one listener named Tyler writes to me, he says, Brad, I've been a longtime listener. And, uh, as Mark did in his first email to you, I just want to thank you for making the show. I had a similar experience with Mark's death. Of all the high-profile celebrity deaths I've heard about in my life, I've never felt seriously moved by them. But when I heard about Mark, I was hurt, punched in the gut. I cried. I almost cried last night reading a piece of his to a crowd. I'm rambling. I'm still dealing with this tragedy. I cannot say 
how much I appreciated hearing you talk, not only about the kind of person he was, but actually reading his emails. They were so representative of him. His words, even in an offhand email, were touching and constructive. Keep doing what you're doing. Also, Mark was raising money for FANG, fighting against natural gas, which I think is a really great group of people working to save the environment from fracking pipelines and other, and other madness. You probably knew that, but I just wanted to check. Best, Tyler. So uh, I think you can find Fang online at fightingagainstnaturalgas.tumblr.com. Thanks, Tyler, for uh, writing in. So along with that, I also heard from a lot of you. I sent out an email newsletter last week. I've been, you know, this was one of these things at the new year where I'm like, I can, I'm going to do an email newsletter. I'm going to send, you know, emails to uh, people who subscribe or to people who have signed up for other people premium. Like keep in touch with my listeners via email on a semi-regular slash uh, sporadic basis. So, you know, I was trying to, con- I've been trying to conceptualize it and I ultimately decided that there's really no, you know, not going to be any point to it. I'm not going to send like a list of links or recaps of episodes. That just bores me. Who wants an, you know, I don't think anybody needs an email like that. Or at least I don't want to write one. Like the show has a website, figure it out. (laughs) Um, it's got an app. You can get it on iTunes. It's a podcast, you know? I mean, like how, how complicated do we need to make this? So, uh, you know, what I did is I decided there, you know, that there would be no point there would be no regular schedule. I'll just email uh, my, you know, my newsletter uh, subscribers on a very uh, sporadic basis, and I'll just talk about something. And so, for this uh, first edition of the newsletter, I talked about my experience of spending two hours inside of a sensory deprivation tank on inauguration day. My uh, my buddy Adam Greenfield and I we went over there. There's a place in Westwood. And uh, I think we did that as a kind of symbolic gesture. There was a group on. (laughs) Adam emailed me right after the election. It was like, hey, there's a group on for a sensory deprivation tank. I was like, great, let's book it for Inauguration Day. That was the genesis of it. So, uh, you know, we did that. And I reported on it in the email newsletter, which if you're interested, uh, you can sign up for over at the show's website, otherppl.com. So I'll read a few letters that I got. A listener named Michael said, Hey Brad, I think you should just go forth with your recording gear and do some guerrilla interviewing. Maybe start with some places like art galleries, bookstores, the lingerie department at TJ Maxx before simply taking it to the street. Although the way things are going, we may need you as a citizen journalist. Signed, Michael. I totally forgot to mention that in the email newsletter, because it's a rambling, pointless exercise, uh, along with detailing my experiences in a sensory deprivation tank, I also talked about this mobile uh, recording equipment that I now own and you know how I keep going back and forth on how I should use it. Like, Do I take this stuff out into the street? Do I start doing random interviews with people? Does there need to be more structure? So Michael was responding to uh, my sense of indecision. I I then heard from a listener named Jen. She said, uh, hey, Brad, glad to hear about your experience with the flotation uh, or the float lab because I wanted to try one in Brooklyn 
and uh, I'm now having second thoughts due to your review. Signed, Jen. I then responded to Jen. I said, hey, don't let me stand in the way of your magical experience. It's always possible that you could have a spiritual breakthrough while peeing in salt water. I didn't pee in the salt water, but I didn't pee in the tank, by the way. My buddy Adam did. <laughs> um, so Jen then replied, if I'm going to have a spiritual breakthrough, pee, you know, peeing in salt water, I would hope that it would be in the waters off of Bali or Belize, not in a steel cage in the dark. I then responded by saying, I know why the caged girl pees. And uh, there was no response from Jen, which then made me wonder after the fact, like, like as I was putting together this monologue and like going through the emails and everything, I thought to myself, like, did I creep her out? Is that a, is that a creepy thing to say? It was a literary joke. It was a Maya Angelou reference. I know why the cage bird sings. Do you guys understand? I'll do that sometimes with somebody uh, I don't really know very well at all. I don't want to freak anybody out. It's a literary joke, a little literary humor. Little Maya Angelou humor, Jen. Hope that's permissible. A listener named Daniel then wrote, Hi Brad, I've been in a float tank four times. All not on drugs. I wrote an article about it. A website paid me to write about these experiences. So I had to do research ahead of time. Here's what I learned. John C. Lilly invented flotation tanks. He also got famous for trying to communicate with dolphins while on LSD. John Lilly had his own float, uh, flotation tank. He would get inside the tank after injecting himself with large doses of ketamine. He did this all day long for months at a time, gathering quote unquote data. He said he was a scientist at the correct dose. He claimed that he could communicate with aliens. The aliens were from echo E C C O otherwise known as the Earth Coincidence Control Office. They were in charge of coincidences on Earth. One day, John C. Lilly fell from his bike and was knocked unconscious on a remote road near his home. His wife, coincidentally, drove by just minutes after the crash and rushed him to the hospital. I think that's how the story goes, something like that. John C. Lilly said that the aliens put his wife on that road at that specific moment to save his life. There is a Sega action-adventure game from the 90s where you are a dolphin. You swim around trying to go through underwater hoops. It's called Echo. Wikipedia says the game refers to the Earth Coincidence Control Office. This was my favorite game when I was six. I played it for hours. I wanted to be a dolphin. I have not peed in a float tank, but I have peed in a bathtub. It felt a little illegal, like when I released my 28th birthday balloons into the sky. Yours, Daniel. All right, Daniel. That's an interesting letter. I wasn't aware of the history of flotation tanks or the uh, Earth Coincidence Control Office. I don't know. You know, I, like for those of you who received my uh, newsletter, you know that I came out of the experience feeling fairly lukewarm about flotation tanks. I didn't have any kind of transcendent experience. It was fine. That's not something I think I need to do again, you know, but th this notion of, uh, you know, injecting oneself with ketamine or, or being on a, a strong dose of hallucinogens while inside of this thing, 
That does not sound appealing to me at all. Though I suppose it could be, I mean, I'm sure it would probably be fairly intense. It's just, it's claustrophobic, it's pitch black, you're in this water, it's fucking weird. You're naked. <laughs> Those are not conditions that I want to be, uh, in, in which I want to be hallucinating. It's just me, personal preference, not judging. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest once again is Jonathan Herman, Oscar-nominated screenwriter. Uh, you would likely know him for Straight Outta Compton. Great to see him. Great to have him over here and get a chance to talk. Here he is, folks. This is Jonathan Herman. The thing is, you never really know what is going to actually become a movie or become a thing that's i mean i've been doing this since 2009 and i've written a lot of scripts and rewritten a lot of scripts and that's the only thing that got a green light so like maybe i always wanted to be writing movies or just writing in general but i probably didn't picture that particular project being the one it just you, sort of happened to be the one that it initiated really quickly. Like I got to work really fast on it. Well, there was a compressed time frame, right? Like they yeah. needed, they needed it fixed. They hired you to do it. Yeah. Like they already had a, a window to shoot the thing, you know, like five months later and they, and the script had to be rewritten and every other deal I'd had up until that point, they took like a really long time to negotiate or, have to go in a few times to pitch and maybe the job would never even really come into being. But this one, it was like from the time I got the first phone call about it to when, you know, I had the job, it seemed like it was like less than two weeks and it was always like months. I think that's when I learned like, okay, when studios really actually want to move quickly, 
They will. I was more used to the glacially paced process of it. Well, that's where... the thing. When, when good things happen, they tend to happen fast. Yeah. Right? I think that's... In the movie business and in any business. You know, if a deal is going to happen... I don't know if good, just things can happen fast, you know, because I don't think it's always... The end result isn't always great. But this one, I think the, the stars aligned in a lot of ways. I mean, I think when, when I first was considering taking the job, it wasn't like the whole country had blown up into this story of, you know, police oppressing black people. Is that that sort of became you're talking about like Ferguson and all yeah. the, the kind of like major media this, yeah, stories getting the job kind of predated that by a few months. But then once they were shooting the movie the next summer, that's like when it all started happening. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I think about and I've talked about on this show so many times with authors, uh, you know, why a book, it, you know, um, catches a wave, becomes a huge bestseller, how it somehow synchronizes with whatever's in the zeitgeist at the moment and. You can't game that. Like yeah. some, sometimes it's just like a piece of art meets its moment at precisely the right time for whatever reason. And like, that's one element of why something succeeds. Like obviously the script has to be good, but there is like that little bit of cosmic magic to it. Oh yeah. I mean, I, during that whole summer of when it came out leading into the whole awards campaigning, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I busted out a little Yiddish there. Um, I think that whole period, I, I heard the term lightning in a bottle like 9,000 times. It sort of seemed like this perfect. I mean, it really, I can't really describe lightning in a bottle better than that. Like that this movie came out precisely at a time when there was anger and awareness on this particular issue. And that the movie has scenes that just, just like pinpointed that like several times. Even when I was writing them, I, I mean, I knew that it had happened, but it was just so bizarre to see that line up so perfectly yeah with everything that people were currently really pissed about so how did and, you get the job like why did they pick you i mean i think it was just one of those like kind of i had been working in the business for like i said since 2009 and i had a few relationships i mean i don't have a lot but one of my relationships was with this guy scott bernstein who was an executive universal at the time and he actually bought one of my first spec scripts that in, in 2009 and uh when all i had was a couple of spec scripts and uh i stayed in touch with him over the years and worked on another project at universal with him that you know never went anywhere as i described before the, the jobs that you get paid to do but nothing happens that's common uh, and that's common in hollywood oh yeah yeah and uh, i mean i think some people could you know have a whole career where it's just that you know and make a I great living yeah. Or at least a quality living. Yeah. Um, for sure. Uh, but then, and also he was kind of a, a music head or still is kind of guy. And I go to a lot of shows and so I would, I would run into him and I think he knew that I, you know, we'd discussed music a lot and he just called me one day and said, I, I, you know, he's a very kind of like tough bulldog kind of guy. And he's like, I have, I know what your next job is going to be. I have it. You know, this is it. It's uh we're making an NWA movie and you should totally be the guy to rewrite it. We just got it from, from Warner brothers and we got a window. You know, he gave me just a real hard sell. I think like after the phone conversation, I was like, what did that? That's, <laughs> what like, did I just really? sign up for? Like, yeah. <laughs> or I didn't know because I had actually just gotten another job at universal for this kind of a horror movie. 
that also never went anywhere. But uh, I just signed the contract and I was supposed to start. And I told him that. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how I'm supposed to. Like, that job has the first position. And you, he's like, I'll take care of that. You know, if it's at the same studio, you know, fuck it. You know, we'll just, I'll get you off that job. I was like, okay. And I mean, and he did. Wow. <laughs> and then the producers of the other movie were really unhappy about it. But luckily, they were both at the same studio. And so they were able to pluck me off of one. And yeah, I mean, I had to go in and, and have a few meetings uh, at the studio with, you know, with Gary Gray and with some of the other executives and Ice Cube just to make sure we were all on the same page. So you're sitting down with Ice Cube? Yeah. Just and yeah, I went to and going to Dr. Dre's house uh, and, you know, sitting with him. What is that like? Are you intimidated in going into that meeting? Are you thinking, are you shitting your pants going, oh my God, like I got to go to Dr. Dre's house and and talk to him about writing the story of his, uh, you know, young creative life and trying to do it with authority. And yeah, yeah, there is definitely, I mean, it's weird. I, this has happened to me a few times in, in this job where I've sort of equated it to like putting on a really big suit that kind of doesn't fit. And then just having to kind of act like it does or grow, <laughs> grow into it really quickly. Yeah. And I've felt that sensation many times where I'm like, going into a situation where I'm like I feel completely unqualified to be doing this but you know here we go yeah and I guess I have to well in, like the, here's, the, here's the thing I mean like in in the the world of uh writing in being a creative person um you know and just specifically in the realm of Hollywood since that's what we're talking about you got to make a living you got to get a job and if yeah. that means you have to put on the big suit and act like you know what you're doing and write a movie that might not be Mm -hmm. the thing that you would write if you had no constraints. And if, it, you know, if, if someone said to you write the exact movie you want, we'll make it. Right. I don't know if it would be straight out of Compton. Yeah. Probably. But you, you try <laughs> it, you go to work, you do the work. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like I, last year, I guess maybe it's it was late 2015. I, I went to New Zealand or I got flown there to, to do a rewrite on a, a pretty big studio movie. What is it? Um, it was ghost in the shell. Okay. Which, you know, starring full, uh, Scarlett yeah. Johansson and uh, well, full disclosure. I mean, I'm not credited on this movie. There was I th lots. I'm probably the, not allowed to tell you say how many, but there were a lot of writers uh, on this movie. As there going, often are. On there's movies. an arbitration where they're going to decide it's not going to be me. Like my contribution to the movie is probably pretty minimal. But at the time I was like, oh, I'm going to be the one to save this movie. And, <laughs> but I was like freaked out about it and very far from home. But the same sensation of like, I don't know if I can really do this, but I have to just try. I have to just. Where were you in New Zealand? Wellington. So they fly you into Wellington. You're the conquering hero. <laughs> you're gonna save. You're gonna save the production. Yeah. It but is then what happens? What happens when when that happens? When they say to a writer, "We're having trouble with the script. We need you to rewrite it. We're gonna fly you to Wellington." Then what? Right. Like, are you on the set and you're working with the director to rewrite scenes in real time? Or are you like, well, holed up in a hotel? I think there's a lot of ways it happened. For me, they were in pre-production on it. Like, they weren't shooting it oh, yet. Okay. That was still a month or two out. And maybe it sort of became longer. But there was, you know, hundreds of people employed already and they were building sets and they had a whole whole thing going. But yeah, meeting with the director and trying to figure out, and the producers trying to figure out what parts of the story, you know, worked and how to make them work better and lots of meetings and, and outlining and trying to get people to make decisions and, uh, and then just finally starting to write. I mean, the whole, it's, I think every, it goes differently for, for every single job. I've never had two jobs that went 
the same way. It's so you cra- can't really predict. Well, and it's it. a crazy it's a crazy process to make really expensive art in that big of a collaboration yeah. with that many different cooks in the kitchen and that many different people and you know, like it's it's a really messy process. It makes sense that it would not be replicable from one to the next. Yeah, you know? well, and also I think there's there's another thing that I've learned is that there's like three different movies. You know, I think that 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 sort of happen in order. The first one is the movie that you write. It's like on the page, and you have a script, and that has a certain level of you know worth as a script. People like they want to have the script, and then they feel like they have a movie. But then there's the movie that they shoot. Which often is probably in many ways different than the way the script laid it out. You know, it's a script is 120 pages, which would ideally make a two hour movie, but you might shoot 120 pages and end up with a three and a half hour movie, or right. you might, or one that's a lot shorter. And so then you have this third movie, which is the movie that you edit, where that once they've shot everything and they're putting it together and they have to actually assemble a movie that feels like a movie. And by the time you're at that stage, you're pretty far removed from the script and everything that you went in through into the script. And they're making all kinds of decisions with just the edit to the way to tell the story. That's very, I think that's a part of, I think that's yeah. a part of movie making that might not get the credit it deserves in terms of how much impact it has is the edit. Oh, like yeah. We can think of the screenplay. We can think of the direction and the actual shooting of the movie, but that, that's where, I mean, in the, in the edit bay, like things can change radically. Yeah. And there's, and there's so many dramas play out in the editing room. It's usually just, you know, you have your editor and your director and then the studio or whoever has the money sort of overseeing. And if the edit is going well, probably the studio won't interfere. And especially if this, if the early versions of the edit start getting test screening and they get good scores, the better the scores and the more faith they're going to have in the director to kind of do what they want but you know god forbid those scores aren't good then they're going to gradually lose face in the director and maybe at some point just completely remove them from the process and so that and that goes on for a really long time like right up until pretty what the market research you mean no i mean just the editing oh right and then the market research might lead to a reshoot well that's the thing like that that part of movie making too like you know, because I'm coming at this uh, primarily as a writer of books. Like, they don't test market a book before they decide to publish it. They don't? Like, nothing at all? I don't think so. I mean, they don't send it out to, like, 400 readers and, like, you know, go do a poll with them or, you know, do some sort of a... Uh, who's that guy? A Frank Luntz, you know, with the little meter. Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't do that. But they kind of... You know, with movies, it's a two-hour experience. They can bring in a test audience. Mm-hmm. They can have them respond. They can interview them, find out exactly what parts they liked and didn't like. Yeah. Oh, you and, don't like this ending? Well, how about this one? Right, right. Yeah. And it's like, I, I guess, like, the question then becomes, how accurate are those? How much faith to place in those? Right. I, I guess if you had a, a big enough representative sample of audience, you could probably get a pretty accurate idea of box office. Yeah. Well, they do. They have these things called comps. It's all based on comps. Like, anytime they're trying to get a movie greenlit, they have to compare it to previous movies that are similar to it and that's how they base like well this movie cost 30 million but it made 60 and this movie cost blah 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 and it's all based on that it's like they don't even give a shit how good the script is or the zeitgeist no it's all comps and that's why i think straight out of compton had a really hard time uh getting greenlit like and that's why it was abandoned at one studio and picked up at another there were no comps there's nothing to be like what's a similar movie to straight out of compton so 
how much money should we budget to it? How much money will it make? Uh, but I would argue, I would argue as a casual moviegoer, uh, that Universal in particular as a studio has figured out a way to be profitable and, and very profitable sometimes uh, by uh, what's embracing and reconstituting the cultural nostalgia of yeah. Generation X. Like I'm thinking of like mm-hmm. Jurassic Park and they felt like, like mm-hmm. you know, at the, at the straight out of Compton and like these things like generationally, I'm trying to think of what the other one was that they did. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like, there is a there is like a, a hunger to kind of take your kids to go see some version of the movie you love. I mean, Star Wars is doing that, I guess, now, too. It's yeah. Like, like, the nostalgia hmm. business is big. I guess, it, you know, you could also say that it's, you know, comic books are big and Star Wars is just big as an entity in and of itself. Like, Yeah. You know. I think it's more of a thing, like, they didn't. I think even when right up until when it was coming out, they probably thought it was going to be kind of a niche movie. You know, it was going to appeal to a black audience who was a very like loyal audience and, and interested and want to see like especially if something comes out that's good. They knew that they had that, but I don't think they really thought that it was going to be. Everybody kind loves, of everybody for, loves NWA. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe they didn't. They didn't appreciate that or know that had it made it. It did a lot better than they thought it was so let's go back to you in the process of writing this movie Mm. you're talking to ice cube you're at dr dre's house you go to Mm. dr dre's house you're by yourself are you with your agent like what do you you show up just no i was with scott the producer and and gary gray okay so it's like gary is uh he he's you know good friends with with dre and so he was sort of the the conduit you know to be able to a buffer yeah and yeah, so yeah, just the three of us, and we and we definitely drank some some gin and juice. Dre like <laughs> Did you busted, really? busted that. Oh yeah, I mean he, I think it helps him to to loosen up. He definitely has has drinks, and he was like, I think I want to, you know, I want to have some drinks, you know, after about an hour, and he had a whole pantry full of gin. Like <laughs> it was pretty funny. Like the, that was all there was in the shelves. <laughs> like, That's awesome. And uh, and actually, at one point, I was because he was living in this mansion and uh, up on like, above Sunset Plaza or up, up Doheny. He doesn't live there anymore. I think at, at the time he was had bought a new place and he was about to move out of this place. So we were sitting on the couch in the living room, and I totally spilled my gin and juice on the carpet. <laughs> oh no! Or just tipped over. And I was so mortified, but he was so cool. He was like, oh, he's like, you know, I'm throwing this rug out anyway. Like this thing's history. Like I spill all you want. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, <laughs> thank God. So, but you, you go into that meeting, you have to, I would assume, give your pitch or at least, I mean, do you, how much talking do you have to do? Are you there to listen? Well, at this point, I think once I met with Dre, like I already had the job, uh, but it was more like. I had to do, I wanted to do research or like, and so we had, we had sort of come up with a very general outline of the shape of the movie and when things would happen and how we play out certain events. So that meeting was basically me going through that with him and him sort of interjecting constantly being like, no, that's not right. Or we took a different bus or that's not how that went down. Or this is my experience of that. And you're taking notes. Oh Yeah. I mean, the whole the meeting was like, like four hours, and I was recording the whole thing too. Ah, okay, good. I tended to re- I re- I recorded all the meetings with him and with Ice Cube. There was actually more meetings with Ice Cube because he was a little more available, and with Tamika, uh, who's Easy E's widow, 
it also just helped to, you know, to record so I could listen. And when I'm in the presence or listening to those voices, the way they talk, because the way that Cube and Dre talk now is very much, you know, the way they talk, you know, back then and listening to the other rhythms of that. I was going to say, like, were you watching our, were you watching archival footage to try to get back into that time and into that place and into those voices? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That and just, and hearing them talk even in the present, you know, it can transport you. And I think I tried to be really hard to replicate the dialogue and their style of speaking. Uh, And I think I did a pretty decent job at other time. I mean, when we, after I had drafts of the script and, uh, then Ice Cube was often there in script, in script meetings, and he'd be like, "Yeah, this is good, but that's the dialogue, man. It's just not right." And I'm like, All right, "I tried." You know? There's always like an agreement that somewhere down the road, uh, we'd go over the dialogue and make sure. And Gary too, because you know, he he knew. And uh, would you? Did you ever have a moment when you were, you know, you just gotten the job? You maybe have like one or two of these meetings. You're just sort of starting to wrap your head around this, or maybe even further along the, you know, along the line in the process, where you just fucking panicked and were like, "What the fuck am I doing?" Oh yeah, I mean for sure. In fact, like I got that job in, I guess it was late November, and I had to have a draft. Um, I started writing probably mid December, but I had to have a draft done by I remember January fifteenth. So I had like a month to bang this thing out, which is probably about a third of the time that you're supposed to get. You had a month. You had a skill. month to write from one to yeah one o one o five or whatever exactly. it is. Yeah, it was probably like one thirty five. Like that first <sighs> draft was long, and so I didn't get my typical Christmas vacation off. Or I always go up to my partner's uh, his mom's house in Paso Robles, and that's where we go for Christmas. And I actually had to work, you know, every day. And I remember one time uh, just sitting in the kitchen of his his mom's house, and and. Well, they were all out wine tasting or something, and I had to to write. And I was sitting there, and I was writing the scene, a confrontation between Dre and his mom that kind of opens the movie. In Paso Robles? Yeah, that's right there. In one uh, one country where they're tasting? Yeah. (laughs) And I was writing the scene, and I remember looking at it, like, after a couple hours, and I was going through what I would written. I was like, oh, my God. Like, this is such bullshit. Like, this is... (laughs) This is horrible. Like, what the fuck <laughs> am I doing? Like, why am I even writing this? Like, yeah. And there was a few times, and especially in those early days, testing out just the voice and trying to. And I would just be like, all right, well, I have to just, I have to hand in something. Because Bernstein was like cracking the whip, and he wanted like thirty pages, you know, every week, to you know, on a regular basis, and he was whipping me. I was like, I gotta turn in something, you know. So, so you know throw caution to the wind and just keep going. But there is definitely you listen to music. You listen to the music as you write. Uh, I, not really. I mean, at, at certain points when I, I mean, cause the thing is I, an NWA song probably lasts like two and a half minutes long. And when I write, I'd always listen to music when I write, but it tends to be more kind of like background like instrumental ambient, yeah. Pandora station or something. And I think when I, would, I would definitely put on a more hip hop themed station, but and I would listen to certain songs if they were you know important to the scene because a lot of the scenes are built around songs and lyrics, particularly the no Vaseline scene. But uh, yeah, and I, but I think it was after maybe I'd handed in the first thirty pages and got some feedback that I realized that like it was kind of going well, 
and that gave me a boat of confidence that they seemed to be like, this is good. No, no. They're like, you know, this is good. Keep going. Keep going. And you know, that's always a good sign. If they're not really nitpicking the shit out of everything you first do. Cause I was expecting them like they're going to hand it in and be like, Oh, the tone is wrong. Or oh, this is just, you know, not, you can tell when people are not getting it or just not feeling it. And the response is more like, you know, keep going. Don't stop. Why, why do you think it worked? Why do I think like the script worked? Like, why did this one work? Why did they respond? Why were, why were you able to do it? <laughs> like, you know, cause your, your field of experience obviously uh, right. varies quite drastically with the guys in NWA. I mean, you're from Connecticut. Uh-huh. You come from a, like an upper middle class background, uh gay Jewish guy. And like, yeah. you're somehow channeling the voice, uh, the voices. Well, I, think, of- I think gay might've helped a little bit. Just, uh, just as far as, coming from a place of being maybe a bit of an outsider or not quite fitting into the, the mold. But cause I always said like, cause I did a lot of, after the movie came out and, and the award shit, like there was a lot of time for being interviewed and I answered the same questions like a million times. And I think one of the things I sort of figured out during that was like, well, it must've worked if, if maybe what I brought to the project was an, a totally different, a person, a totally different upbringing and experience. But if I brought, you know, my sense of it, like to the table, then that would help other people, you know, outside of this niche audience to experience the movie. That makes sense I, to me. That makes sense yeah. to me. Cause like, cause every movie- writer you should, I mean, even if I'm writing about whatever, if I'm writing about going to the moon or I'm writing about Somalia, I am going to be to write a good scene. You have to inject your own humanity into it. Well, and there's something about over-specialization. Like if a movie or a story is told from too in too much of an insider perspective. So I think sometimes that can create blind spots because the people who are insiders obviously know the world intimately and might not have a need for the kind of telling that a broader audience would to have points of entry. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe that makes some sense to me. Like you're coming at it from the outside in mm-hmm. trying to learn it quickly yeah, and then translate it essentially, or in some capacity do you, do you also um, have any feelings about the compressed time frame and whether or not the intensity of uh, the deadline that you were up against, like did that, did the pressure of that help the creative process? Did- yeah, I think it definitely did. Cause I'm not the most disciplined worker or writer anyway. And I tend to respond, excuse me, to deadlines and, if sometimes if there isn't enough of a tight deadline, then I might be tempted to slack off. So I think, yeah, the intensity of it and having someone looking at our shoulder and, and knowing there was this looming start date definitely added to the, the creative, you know, I think, yeah. Plus, you, plus well you know, it's going to get, and, you, and, and you know, it's going to get made. Yeah. Or at least you, you hope, I mean, they, nothing was guaranteed. They had always kept saying like blinking green light, which, you know, to some people, it's like, oh, it's almost a green light. It's pretty much a green light. But you could also look at it like, no, it's actually not a green light at all. Right. <laughs> There's no green light. And I think there was a lot of times, even in the writing of the script or leading up to it, that they could have lost it, the movie. And I think there were a lot of things after I was done writing and they were just trying to get, get it launched, there was probably many moments where they thought that it wasn't going to get made at all. I think it came pretty close to not like the budget, the numbers didn't line up or they needed it to be, you know, for example, it has to be 29 million, the budget, but they had a budget that was 31 
Is the studio going to give up that extra $2 million? I mean, they, it's weird how they won't, they'll really stall on like those, you know, be like, no, you're, you can't make the movie unless you shave off a million or two, which is weird. Cause at the end of the day, it moved, it made like so much more of it made all this money back, but that's all, you know, you don't hindsight. know that. You don't, yeah, exactly. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and and no comps. So they're like, we don't have any guarantee this movie's going to play, or that anyone's going to give a shit. And of course, you know, once it does do well, then it, you know everyone's gonna be like, oh, I always knew it would be. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But what to is go it, back success, to like, what is it? What's the say? Like success has a hundred fathers or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. But I think I don't know. I think you have to have a certain degree of faith in in what you do or your own craft or you're really just going to be lost i mean i can be a very neurotic type of a writer and and say all those things that writers say like oh i can't really do it or i really suck at this or blah blah, blah. But i think at the end of the day you have to believe in your chops yeah well because and- no one's ever going to believe in your chops people are going to get sick of telling you no you're really great and you're like no i suck yeah when you're actually doing it for a living you kind of have to spend a lot of time convincing people no you should hire me like i'm going to do this yeah this is what i'm going to bring to the table and that's why you want me and then uh or even if you don't say it it's implied and then you have to deliver you know and i guess either you do or you don't i think there's been times when i have on projects maybe not quite delivered but I always delivered something. I mean, I'm, I'm glad the fact that I can keep working means that I must be, you know, doing something correctly. And there's always going to be some anxiety, but I, especially with this, you walk in a room with those guys, you have to bring your own kind of level of swagger. Like, especially when you like, I had to make decisions. Like, no, that's I know maybe Ice Cube felt, you know, well, I had three kids. Why can't there be a scene in the movie where I'm my, I'm catching my first baby as he put, you know, and cause there was a scene in there maybe like where Dre had a kid and, and there's just not room to tell every story. Right. And you have to kind everybody of like wants stand equal, up. Everybody wants equal time. They're yeah. I'm imagining their like agents are probably advocating for them to have a certain amount of pa- like pages and whatnot. Yeah. And also, I mean, there was time like Ice Cube once told me this story about how, you know, scary was he was he was uh, bussed out of his neighborhood to I think somewhere in the valley to go to a, a good high school, and took a bus back all the way down you know to to South LA, and certain bus you would have to change into like a bus at the exposition center and to a much scarier bus that went through various neighborhoods that are you know dangerous and controlled by different gangs and. You described just very vividly how, you know, the anxieties of riding that bus and having to watch everybody who's getting on and being prepared to jump out the window if the wrong person got on. And so I listened and I had notes and I was like, oh, I I could write a really cool scene around that. And so I did. I wrote this very kind of anxious scene of him riding the bus. And he was sort of like, his reaction was like, man, why would you like why'd you make it look like I was like a mama's boy, like kind of scared to ride the bus? Like, why, why do you like make me go out like that? And I was like, I, I thought that's the story you told me. Like I thought, I mean, I'm like, there's nothing wrong with like being scared in a movie. It just it gives a character kind of somewhere, you know, some humanity. You, you identify with them. You, people will be really, you know, feeling it in that moment. And, but he didn't want to seem like he was weak or, and so there's a lot of nuance there. Like, well, it's hard, it's,
it's got to be weird to have your life made into a movie and yeah. reconstituted. Well, I keep saying, like, look, this isn't just maybe for a minute. And you have to always look at it as it's not just a story of your life. It's a, Think of it as a movie about fictional characters that you'd want to go see. Like, think of it as a superhero movie, you know. And this isn't you. This is a character on screen. And characters have to have low points and high points. And they have to suffer. They have to, you know... Or else it's really you're going to be a boring character on screen if if you're kind of just in control and cool all the time. No one, you know, is going to care. The best characters are the ones that you really feel deeply and have ups and downs. So I think there was a battle there to be like, look, you know, have faith in the process of, like, establishing a character and you, you don't have to just... And I think, you know, I won't, you know, name any names, but I think certain characters in the movie do have more depth and... uh and truth to them because they show some more highs and lows and other characters are a little more down the middle and you can sort of tell maybe who was you know willing to be to make themselves look more vulnerable on screen did you get to go on set i did a few times but i mean writers the, usually don't though right i mean i think it depends i mean there's sometimes that you're brought us if you're actually working as like an on-set production rewrite kind of stuff then you are there writing scenes on the fly, like you said. I haven't actually personally done that. But by the time, yeah, I was done, I was moving on to other projects, so I didn't really have a ton of time to... But I went to the set a few times, and which is really amazing. That was for sure one of my favorite things, you know, was going this one day where they uh, were filming a scene at Jerry Heller's house where... They filmed a couple of scenes there, but one in particular was where Easy e fires Jerry towards the end of the movie, kind of a climactic scene where they really have it out, and uh, and he fires Jerry, and it's very emotional. And just sort of watching Paul Giamatti and Jason like do performing like that scene over and over again, and and it was totally the way I wrote it. You know, I can just tell from the sides like they were, it hadn't really been rewritten or changed much. They were just. You know, doing it the way, and I was like, "Wow, this is crazy!" Watching really like Paul Giamatti um, yeah, and these guys uh, reading your lines. Like, were you? Did you? Did you tear up or anything? Yeah, I did. It was emotional because, like, especially because he was. It didn't make it to the movie, unfortunately. Because Paul, when he did a few takes, he really lost it and was like crying, like Viola Davis crying, like yeah. you know, with snot and everything. And it was like it totally was, and I think. Something to do with fucking Jerry Heller, like when he was alive, said, you know, if you, that was one of the things he just couldn't do. He couldn't show his, him crying because that he wouldn't allow that or his estate. And so they couldn't use like probably where the best take was. There's some, there's some scrap somewhere, some film. Yeah. But watching that was like, wow, this is really, this is real. Like they're actually performing words that I wrote and it sounds really cool. And. And it was yes, it was sort of humbling and and really emotional and, and moving. And I guess maybe I won't. I'll probably experience it, but never for the first time again. Never like you like you're Viola Davis crying, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was that was cool. I don't really know how I arrived on on that subject, but well, no, man, right. it's like that's like your moment. That's like the moment where it, it becomes actual, you know. Because for writers, yeah. like so much of your time is spent. Uh, you know, sitting in Paso Robles, trying to get into this world and do the writing and staring at a blank page. And then, mm-hmm. you know, to actually see, especially with movies and all the different moving pieces that have to 
you know, sort of find their mark in order for the thing to happen. I mean, it's like, it's not only a huge creative undertaking, like the logistics of getting a movie made mm-hmm. financial and otherwise, uh, it's a miracle it ever happens. And so to see it happen for something that you've written is an awesome achievement. Yeah. That was, that was great. So how did you get into this? Like, let's, cause like, you, you know, I think anybody who has success in show business, this is my new theory anyway, uh, be, speaking to how difficult it is. Like you have to really love it. Mm. Like if you don't, then I feel like the amount of bullshit that you have to tolerate to sort of get through the gauntlet will eventually, uh, dissuade you. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you, you really love movies. Yeah. I think you have, I, yeah, I definitely really love movies my whole life. And I think I always took a shine to writing as well. I was, I think did better in English than in other classes that I did not do well in and, and was always writing I wrote short stories or poems. I never really attempted a screenplay for a long time, not even in college, but I was an English major and I took poetry classes and creative writing. And where'd you go to college? Tufts. Okay. Which didn't really have much of like a film program there, or at least at the time, but it was, it's a, a, I enjoyed my time there. And I think I had some really good, uh, professors of, in creative writing. And I think actually the poetry really helped, and I did, yeah, I, I took, I studied poetry and also like creative writing poetry for, you know, I went up all the levels from like the sort of the beginner level till I was in like the sort of advanced poetry seminar. That makes where, sense though. Cause it's compression, you know, screenplay, you have a, yeah, it's a compressed yeah, form, yeah. you know, like you got to really learn how to boil it down. Yeah. That's yeah. Maybe it never even really occurred to me till you just said that, but yeah. And like I do a lot of, in writing when I'm, especially when I'm editing, I really don't want much prose or much fat in there. And if there's like four lines of it, I'd much rather it be three. And if there's like one word hanging down after like three lines, it drives me insane. Me too. I have to just, it has to be neat. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And sometimes I don't know, is is that like just me being crazy or is is that actually making the writing better? Like, is it that way for other people? Like when they see, like I cannot abide a hanging little word. It's called an orphan, I think. And, and yeah, I think like, uh, there is, a, I think for certain writers anyway, there is a level of visual artistry to the putting of words on the page and like, not to sound super precious about it, but it's like the way that the thing looks on the page yeah. matters to its quality and how it reads somehow. Like, especially uh, a poem is it has, has a visual shape to it. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, a screenplay yeah, sort of mirrors very... that sort mm-hmm. of mirrors that. So like that makes complete sense to me because I'm. I'm really nitpicky about how it looks. I think mm-hmm. a lot, I think a lot of writers are. Yeah. I like to believe that the good ones. <laughs> so, but you, yeah. uh, you grow, you're growing up in Connecticut. Uh-huh. You, your parents don't work in entertainment or anything like that. No, no. Yeah. Well, my mom, my mom was just, she didn't really work. I mean, she was a nutritionist and a, a yoga instructor, but my, my dad was, a he worked for Toys R Us, like a sales rep. Which is what his dad did. He was always kind of the toy business that was passed down. But he always made it very clear he didn't really want me to do it because I don't think he. I think my dad had some sort of existential sadness about him, probably kind of like death of a salesman type stuff, just having to go on the road or having to deal with people. And, just like, and they, I think like he holding to, a He Man in one hand. And yeah, like a... I think he had to eat a lot of shit. I really felt I didn't really know it at the time, but just from gathering with you know, um, as I got older that, and your parents are no longer with us. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, my dad's been gone since 2005 and my mom died like two and a half years ago. Uh, 
which sucked because like I was very close to my mom and and she was awesome and she was at least got to see some of my success. She always knew that I wanted to do this and she at least got to see from my you know sold specs and I was working, but she never got to see straight out of Compton. She never got to go to Dre's house with you, no, or see everything else that it would have you know really tickled her. That sucks, but I mean, she did get to say. I'm sure she knew you were on your way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I have my sister, who's uh, who I'm very close with as well, and she and her family. And so at least she got to, you know, I got to bring her to the premiere and stuff like that. So what about okay? So you get out of Tufts. Uh-huh. You're like a poet, and then what? You come. <laughs> I was like a, I was like a loner, and rebel. <laughs> <laughs> you like music? Because yeah. I want to say I met you. I met you, I remember we were in a car. It was like in one of our friends' cars. We were driving somewhere. Probably Chris Birch. Yeah, going out. Yeah, going out. And it was like, uh, that would have been like 2001, maybe? I think maybe I've been early. I think maybe I've been in the late 90s. Yeah, but I remember like we were introduced and it was like, John's a writer too. Like That's Mm -hmm. kind of what I remember. And then I remember you just being like, whatever. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I came out here just because one of my friends from college was going to move to, wanted to move to LA. And I was like, well, I'll come too. I mean, I was living in Boston maybe one year after college. Uh, I was like, you know, maybe I could go and get an internship. And my parents were always very super, you know, supportive and said they'd help. Um, and so I came out and stayed in like a fraternity brother uh, on his couch in Westwood. And I think I lived there for a month. And then I got, I just knew I wanted to do something in the business, you know, in movies. I don't know if I knew it was going to be writing, but I just wanted to work in that world. And movies in particular, not TV. Yeah, like, not TV. Movies. I mean, I've always been watching TV. Yeah, it's always, movies have always been the first love. And I, uh, this is back when they actually had, you know, help wanted ads in the back of the trades, in the back of Variety and Hollywood Reporter, where you could actually find a job. I don't, it's crazy to think, because I don't think that really exists anymore. And I saw a little ad for like intern wanted on a movie, you know, call this number or send your resume. So I did. And then they invited me down there and that movie ended up being a, it was boogie nights. No shit. Yeah. And it was this very sort of under the radar, crazy movie with this young, hot director. And this, this, it was very sexy and racy and provocative. So wait, 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 when did you paint the picture for us? You show up and they're doing what for the movie? Yeah, I remember it was super embarrassing because I totally went to this interview for this internship. And I, I wore my suit that I had, you know, just in case for getting a job. <laughs> and I was, I remember even the woman who was like a production coordinator or something. So they wanted just an office PA unpaid and I, and they were all, you know, dressed like, you know, production people do, yeah. or, you know. Who's this dude? Who's this dude in the suit? I came in wearing this. Oh God, it's so awful uh, that I wore that suit. And she's like, yeah, you know, like, cause I got that. She's like, you don't have to dress, you know, like that. You know, I did the same thing when I went to New York to get a literary agent. Like, I didn't know. I was like, I, 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 you know, I'm like, I'm going to New York. I got to meet with people like, do you, and I'm wearing a suit. And I just remember like my agent was looking at me like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> You're a writer. You're not supposed to dress like this. Yeah. And I remember they gave me the script. The first thing, like. And she's like, okay, you you can have you seem great, you know, you can have the job. Um, well, the first thing you do, why don't you just read the script? So they handed me like this huge, like 150 page, pink and all different colors, Paul Thomas Anderson Boogie Night script. And you had no idea who he was. 
No, I had no idea. But I mean, it was pretty obvious I, from like page two that it was like one of the coolest things I ever read in my life. Like it was, it was, really, it was there on the page. Oh, absolutely, the whole movie. And there was, I mean, a lot more too. There was more subplots than, but yeah, the script reads read amazingly, and uh, and I was pretty inspired. So I then I I think I got I worked on that for the whole. Rex, I mean, they were maybe a month into it at the time. He was 27 years old when he made that movie. I think he was. Really? I like think a, he was even younger than that. Yeah, like, I mean, it's something like when that. it came out, he was 27. Yeah, I think he was like 25. Like, oh. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and there was just porn everywhere in that whole production office and his office. Just box, when porn came in those giant like boxes with all the graphics all over it. And I guess it was for research, or yeah. for production design <laughs> and stuff. But, there was porn all over the place, and it was just a, it was a really like maverick sort of atmosphere there. I think everyone knew they were making this pretty crazy movie that was different. Out in the um, valley? Were you in the valley? No, it was actually it was like the studio. Maybe it's called something else now. I'm Fuller in Santa Monica. Okay, yeah. It was maybe it's Coyote now. It was called something else. This this uh, studio there, a little mini studio, and uh, yeah, I think I had a good, really good time working on that. But also, I realized that I didn't really want to be in production those hours. And it's not really, it's more like a job. It's not like a creative job. It was more like, I just didn't necessarily see myself working up that, that like ladder to wherever you could actually be making a decent living as an AD or something. Or would I go to the DGA and the AD program? And I was like, I don't, I don't really think I do want to do that. So I joined a, a temp agency. So I don't even know if they have those anymore. Like it was more entertainment oriented temp agency in Beverly Hills. And they hooked me up in a temp assignment with this dude, a uh, producer named Tom Sternberg, who worked out of his house in Brentwood just for a week. Cause I think he had just lost his previous assistant. And after like that week, Tom offered me the job just to be his assistant. And I ended up doing that for like three years. Oh, that wow. was my first like real job. Did you learn any? Did you learn a lot, or was it oh, mostly fuck yeah? I mean, yeah, that was. I learned a ton. Uh, what did he do? Like, would he? Would we, would he's, we know? He's a he was a producer. He he, but very old school. Like he produced Apocalypse Now. Oh, okay. And the Black Stallion, and uh, and sure was friendly with Francis Ford Coppola and was involved with his company and and just knew like. And so I would handle all of his personal business. And also at the time, his, the movie he was working on was the talented Mr. Ripley. And so when oh. I started working for him, it was just like, that's a great movie. A really, oh yeah. It's awesome. That's weird. Like you were, you basically were on the periphery of like two of the better movies of the last like 20, 25 years. Like talented, yeah, talented Mr. True. Ripley, I think is a masterpiece. Like that's a great film. Yeah. And this is just when it was just like a rough Anthony Mangella draft and they're still trying to kind of bang it out and make it work. So while well, I worked for him for three years, and during that three years, I got to see like everything with that movie, from when the script was locked, they got you know started casting it, and and just the whole, and then you know Tom went to Italy for a long six months or whatever to live. Well, he had he had a house there anyway because his <laughs> wife's Italian. And, oh, okay, okay. And, As uh, one does, he had a he had a villa. Well, yeah, because he he loves Italy. That's why three movies he's produced. Like he also produced Under the Tuscan Sun, an Italy movie, and this other movie with Viggo Mortensen. Anyway, um, but working with him, he also had a, a library of really amazing scripts 
um, from like really good writers like David Peoples and Paul Atanasio, like really big sort of 80s and 90s writers. So I just read scripts all the time, like really good ones. And that was your education, ones. like in yeah. screenwriting, because like it was and not doing, like and, and also doing notes on like scripts that would come like telling Mr. Ripley scripts or anything. You know, the more I worked for him, the more he trusted me. And I started doing script coverage for other companies that he worked with where they would pay me to read a script and, and write it up. And I started doing that all the time, just for extra money, because he couldn't. He didn't really pay me very much. <laughs> well, but, but so, the, but like that makes that makes sense in terms of being like a holistic education, because you're reading yeah. the works of really, really gifted screenwriters. So you're reading the really good shit, but you're also, I'm assuming, if you're writing coverage, reading really bad shit oh, too. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, but yeah. And I think it's kind of like that whole Malcolm Gladwell situation, where I think I, I must have read a couple thousand scripts. And not just there, but also my next job where I worked at Studio Canal, which I got sort of via doing script coverage. I did script coverage for Studio Canal, and then they hired me um, to be a, a development guy. Uh, but yeah, I read so many scripts that I think I osmotically started to kind of get how it worked or how a script would be written. And just the, because they're, they're all very similar in, in a lot of ways, you know, at the core. And I never took a class. I think I may have read like one book or part of a book, like the Sid Field screenwriting book. But mostly it was just by reading them. And also just, I think, frustration. I used to read, uh, even when I was a development guy, I would read Variety every day. Uh, and there, this is, you know, still back in early 2000s when there was a pretty healthy spec market. And every day or week, I'd, there would be a story about some guy, you know, probably around my age, in their twenties, <laughs> selling a script for like six figures, yeah, like over and over again. And often the, those scripts would end up on my desk, and I would read them, and be like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is a piece of shit." You know, I could do like sometimes they're actually really good, but other times I'm like, I can't believe that I'm making you know not that much money working here and I could just, I should be writing a script if these idiots can do it. Right. And I think that sort of driving force. And then, I mean, I wasn't a very gr good executive. I mean, I think I was, I gave good notes, but I was really lousy at, at schmoozing. And there's a whole side to that where you have to just have lunch with people all the time mm -hmm. and always be booking lunch. So that gets, it's a safety net. So then when you all, you know, everyone always, no job lasts in entertainment, like when you get laid off, you'll have all these other contacts that will help you get your next job. So when I got laid off, I didn't really like have that safety. I was like, Oh shit, what do I do now? Like, <laughs> Should have booked more lunches. Yeah, pretty much. So then I was unemployed for a while and, uh, doing weird jobs. I, to make money, because I think after after I got laid off, I started trying to write, and I wrote a few terrible scripts before I wrote like a good one. What's a few? Three? Probably, more like, probably five or six, I would say. Which were maybe like had a, a nugget of a good idea, or like, but yeah, and I, I I I delivered Indian food at this restaurant in West Hollywood for like two and a half, three years. So your car smelled great. <laughs> my car was such a piece of shit too. It was just like things were falling off. And like, I would, I remember even when I was working, you know, when I would turn left, every time I turned left, the car would just rattle and make these horrible. And it was, it would always just 
it was very wearing on my soul. But I think I You're like there's that fucking noise again. It's a symbol. Yeah. And I remember actually I, I do remember I remember going to when like you read Attention Deficit Disorder. Like it had just come out and you had like a reading it book soup and yeah. I went. I think that was during probably during the time. Was that like early 2000s? That was like mid, like 2006, 2007. Right. Okay. And I think that's when I was like really trying to like make it as a writer myself. I'm like, oh, you know, he's like really, you know, has a real book out and this is really possible to actually. And that's when I was like writing with Laurel. Like I had a writing partner for a little while before I went on my own. But I remember thinking like that was my first real glimpse to like someone could actually you know, make something happen as a writer and not just sort of, cause there's so many, you know, people in LA or whatever who are writing or say they're writers and maybe they'll never actually get something happening or they'll never get a foothold. Well, I, you know, it's and funny it's too. So like I, I take, I, I, I think I was thinking about this recently. It's like, I, you never really learn it. I feel like I constantly have to relearn it. But like the, the big thing that I always have to come to grips with is just how hard you have to work. Mm. Like for some reason, I don't want to believe it. I want to believe it's easier than it always, you know what I'm saying? I want to believe it's easier to get a book done than it actually is. And then it's like, no, you have to grind it out. Like you mm. have to do the work. And like, if you don't do it, it's not happening. Like, yeah. you know, and then at some point you just get down to business. And I, think, and I think you have to have, it's not just that you have to work even when you don't want to. It's also, you really do have to roll with a lot of bullshit and rejection. And I mean, I have a couple of friends who I feel like actually have, like a real talent and could do it, but it's like they get one piece of bad news and they're like, Oh fuck this. That's not fair. Right, or right. like, you know, like they almost maybe had something happen and, and it didn't. And they kind of gave it up. And I'm like, you know, you can't, I mean, I don't think anyone, you're always going to have some bad news or if you actually like the first thing that you try to make happen happens like that's, that's probably super rare. And I think most of the time, you're going to have bad news and shitty things that happen and you have to keep wanting to do, I don't even, sometimes I don't even know like, why do I keep doing it? I guess I, there's nothing else I feel like I could really do. Right. That's sort of it. I don't think I could really change careers. It would be nice to just sort of, you know, create a TV show like CSI and just, and then like a machine and just, it would just generate millions of dollars and I could just sit on boards and go and like, and P and like, Q and a panels and never work again. Like that would be, that would be awesome to create some kind of self-generating money machine. Maybe that's what a lot of writers really just want to do. Right. <laughs> what do but, you want to do? Like you want to make great movies. You want to write great movies. Yeah. It'd be great. Yeah. I'd like, I'd love to be able to have, and that's why I'm actually sort of dipping my toe into television right now, actually. And I'm, I'm writing this TV show for Amazon or I'm sort of trying to, I'm writing the pilot right now. Uh, cause everyone says you, that's what you should do. Cause you have so much more control and, and power and your vision can actually make its way to the screen as opposed to film where you're sort of hired to do a gig. You're kind of like a racehorse and they kind of whip you and maybe run you to death and then, <laughs> and then they're done with you. Turn you and, into glue. And uh, yeah. And unless you're actually directing your own script, I don't, you kind of have to make peace with the fact that you're just your babies are going to be murdered and you wrote the blueprint. They built the house kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. And you really do. I mean, look, there's a lot of, you know, 
great things have happened for me and, and experiences. And I'm very grateful to have been able to have these experiences, but also it's, you know, disheartening. And there's a lot of, it's true what they say about, you know, screenwriters for movies. You really are not necessarily treated with respect once they're done with you. No. And they act like you're like super important and like they love you when you come on board and, Oh, you're so great to have you. And the notes always start off very complimentary. Like you did such a great job on this script and thank you so much. Yeah. Here's 700 reasons why it's terrible. I, I feel like the, the word love is often put in all caps in a lot of Hollywood related correspondence. Yeah. I've never uh, seen it. I've never seen it anywhere else. Like, but everyone loves shit in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> But then literally like then it gets very, once they moved on, like they're you're, done. you're they're they're so done. Oh, that's the way it goes, man. It's a business. Yeah. Trying to make money. <laughs> so how do you break through? Like you, you've written, you know, five or six shitty scripts. You're delivering mm -hmm. Indian food in your shitty car. You're pissed off. Yeah. I think, well, the first, I was working on this script, which is called Rights of Men. And, uh. And it's very, it was like my taxi driver. Like it's a very dark, violent um, kind of revenge story. And I think it very much, cause I, I read about how like taxi driver is probably my favorite movie. And I know that Paul Schrader wrote it like at a time of real personal crisis. I think he was like homeless or living on yeah, a couch. A and, guy who is well adjusted and feeling good about things. Doesn't write taxi. Driver. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, so yeah, I think I had a lot of negative things I needed to channel. And so I finally wrote this script and I remember like I, I had a manager even when I wasn't, making any money or doing anything. Um, just cause I had a few, some of these terrible scripts that I wrote still maybe had a few good writing enough or some chops displayed. I'd met this through one of my actually a successful writer friend. He introduced me to this manager and he read some of my junk and he was like, Oh, I, I would represent you because I, I like their voice here. I mean, I, you don't really have something that I can do anything with yet, but I think you should you know keep trying. And so that's what I was doing. And finally, when this one script rights of men was done, I could just tell, like, I, I remember I was at home in Connecticut and like, I'd given it to him on the weekend and he called me and I could just tell by the tone of his voice that like something had changed. He's like, no, I think this script is special. Like, I think you this is actually a script that's good enough. Did you, did you pitch it to him before you sent it to him? Or did you just send it to him cold? It was pretty cold. He actually wanted to suggest he's like, he sent me, he sent me articles just to inspire me. And one was just about this dad whose son was murdered and was trying to find <laughs> Here's uh, some inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> that came out kind of weird. Uh, yeah. But yeah, and basically about a dad is trying to investigate because the cops wouldn't help him. Like what happened to his son? So like, that's kind of what rights of men is a guy, a young dad who's like teenage son is mysteriously murdered and no one knows why. And he kind of begins to unravel why. So I wrote that. And he was like, this is great. He's like, now I can actually, I think we should try to get an agent and I, I can show this to people. And so he did. And I got to meet with a few agents, one of whom was Mike Asola, who's still like my agent now. I mean, that was, that was a while ago. It's probably been eight years ish, eight or nine. Um, and he was a very young guy at the time. Now he's kind of a big shot. You got a good agent. Yeah. You made him. <laughs> I don't know about that, but, uh, but even Mike, my agent, he like, he read that script and he was like, this is really great. I want to represent you, but I don't think it's too, it's too small. I don't, I don't think I can sell this as a spec. Like you have to write a, a, a bigger movie. This is too dark and depressing. 
And I was like, oh shit. So I was in this, actually this weird position for about the next six months where I was like, I'm actually, I, I'm represented at William Morris. Like I have a real agent, but I'm like completely broke and I don't have any, I don't even know if that's going to change or I can't even get a job. I'm like, my foot was just in the door, but I was still, you know, kind of fucked financially. Um, but I did, I had no choice. So I, I wrote another script over the course of the next like four months, which I totally just for the purpose of writing a studio movie. And so I wrote sort of like a cops and robbers kind of bank robbery heist movie. So and, wait, stop for a second. What's uh, that? What's that one called? It's called a uh, conviction. Okay. So you and, set out to write a script, whether it's rights of men or it's conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, Straight out of Compton doesn't qualify because you're sort of, it's a biopic. So you're, you kind of got some source material to work with and like a pre-existing structure sort uh, of in place. But yeah. when you're writing something that's complete fiction, um, you know, we talked earlier about uh, screenwriting being a compressed form or a defined form in ways that like a novel, for example, is not. Mm-hmm. So you kind of know page count. There are, there, there's a real architecture to it. Yeah. Like, you know, like there are certain beats that happen, especially when you get into this and you see enough movies and you start to learn it from the inside out. Like, it's like, oh wow. Like movies are like kind of like Swiss watches. They're, they're very well constructed. Yeah. And there are certain. Ideally. Uh, yeah. Ideally. And, and there are certain, and, and obviously there's always room to maneuver and people break rules all the time, but like broadly speaking, um, there's an architecture to it. And so when you sit down to create uh, a screenplay for conviction or rights of men. Is it mm-hmm. rights of men? Mm-hmm. Um, where, where, how does it begin? Like, where does the, uh, the seed of the idea come from? And then what did you do? Drop an outline and then proceed? Yeah. I mean, I think it usually starts with just notes, you know, or just sort of free writing. Like you have a germ of an idea in your head and start just sort of banging out thoughts and free associating how it's going to go. And like, that's how, you start to have eureka moments or make connections like, Oh, like if I want, I want this to happen. I need this to be discovered. It could come from, you know, once you really start just thinking about the movie, all just kind of swirling around in your head and who are going to be the characters and who, what are the conflicts and how is the character going to drive the plot? Uh, then I can start, you know, getting into kind of an outline form. You know, because I think you just sort of need to know and that's one thing you pick up from Sid Field. That's very true. Like the three act structure that I think a lot of people are like, well, I want to make a movie that transcends the three act structure. It's never going to work because every studio person is like deeply programmed to that model. But so are so are moviegoers yeah, to a certain extent. Exactly. People are people are anticipating whether they know it or not. They're anticipating certain yeah. things to happen in a movie. But basically, everybody, you're plunging some people into a world in the first act where you meet a character and the world that they're in, and then something happens like after 15, 20 minutes that kind of changes their world and they have to be redirected and accomplish a new goal. And then the second act is basically that's the toughest part because you just got to create a whole bunch of junk for your you know characters to go through which often are just false starts or MacGuffins or leading something else until you get to, you know, the midpoint of your movie where the goal that they thought they were going for suddenly, you know, is turned on its head and they have to readjust. And then it's sort of a sprint, you know, to the end and everyone handles like their third acts differently. Some people do them. They're really quick. Some people like maybe in a star Wars movie, they might last, you know, a good three hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to disparage the Star Wars movies. I, I, I like them. Uh, but 
there's a lot of room to play with within that structure, but you really, the studio, when they start giving you notes, they're going to really want, I find like the, with a movie script, the most important thing is really to just set up and pay off. Like everybody, that's what's going to really tickle everybody in the audience. That's what people want, you know, where you learn something early on or something is planted and then it gets to blossom and pay off later. So anytime in a script where you set something up and it doesn't pay off, you're going to hear about it in notes or anytime that something pays off, but you don't really know where the fuck it came from. It hasn't been set up. That's like a note you're going to get. But I think a lot of this, look, I was, when I was writing those two specs, I was probably like feeling my, I wasn't confidently like living within that structure so much. But you had intuited it. You'd read 2000 scripts and written five or six shitty ones. Yeah. You did your apprenticeship. I think conviction also, but like that was, that came from watching this Sam Peckinpah movie, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is a really cool movie. And it's a, it's a Western, uh, but basically, I, the plot of Conviction is very much stolen from that. You know, where Pat Garrett, Billy, that's where Pat Garrett was hired to go after Billy the Kid. who He used to be his mentor, but now he's chasing after him and trying to catch him. And that's sort of the dynamic that's going on. So I think that's where the germ came from. That's where I think, well, how can I make that a contemporary? And there are certain places I wanted it to go. Like, I, I knew ahead of time that I wanted there to be, like, a chase shootout action sequence in the farmer's market on Fairfax. Cause I used to spend a lot of time there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's blow this place up. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, there should, there'd be, this would be great. All these like fruit stands. I can picture just all the fruit exploding <laughs> with the bullets and like, so there's a few elements I knew I wanted to be in there and, uh, and to tell this story. And obviously it went through a lot of edits and iterations. Um, with Mike, yeah, probably more with Steve, my my manager. Okay. Oh yeah, Mike right. too. But yeah, but once so I'd, I'd finished that second with a big studio version movie, and I think I was really my mom had been helping me out with some expense. Even though my expenses were pretty low, and I rent a controlled apartment, my partner. Um, but I was really, and she had told me I think it's been going on for like four months, and she's like, I can't keep giving you, you know, money. You're gonna have to like, you're gonna have to figure some shit out. And and I was starting to think like, what am I going to do now that my writing dream is is over, and uh, I'm going to have to start thinking about something else, or what? How am I going to make money, or what am I going to do? Uh, and at the same time, I was handing in this draft of of conviction to my to my agent. And luckily, I mean, I was literally, yeah, I don't know, I was probably like really close to just being financially ruined. <laughs> And then he really liked that script, and he's like, "Yeah, I think this is great. I, I, I think maybe." I remember he told me it was like it was like on a Friday, and he's like, "Okay, next week I'm gonna start. Let's plan like next week I'm gonna send this script to like a whole bunch of people, and we're gonna like you know try to sell it." And so I was like, "Okay, cool." And I remember I went to a movie at the Beverly Center, and I think that movie was notorious. About it. The notorious B.I.G. Okay, knew about him, and I remember well, it's, I, it's sort of it's sort of like predicts your future. In yeah, a way, right? it did. That's that's <laughs> occurring to me now too. That's weird. Um, and I remember I came out. And I was, went to my car and I took my my phone was like had totally blown up while I was in that movie. And I called my agent. He's like, "Look, you know, don't be pissed at me, but like, I actually sent the script to someone already. This is really like a couple of days after I you know finished it. He's like, I sent it to these these producers at like Joel Silver's company." 
and they like totally flipped out for it. They already made a preemptive offer. And I was like, really? Like how much? And he told, I was like, what? it was like, <laughs> I remember like sitting in my car just being like, holy shit. Like that's how fast, like my life, you know, could change. And where he said like, and they were still negotiating. He's like, I think we could try to get more money. I'm like, well, we'll lose it. Yeah. And he's like, look, okay, we have two choices. Basically we have to decide this today. Like we can still go out next week and maybe get like, maybe even have a bidding war or who knows what's going to happen. Or we could like, just take this deal today. And I was like, fuck, I'm taking the fucking deal today. And, uh, yeah. And like, it was a couple like hours later that that was done. And like, that was like, that was probably and your agent, your agent let you make, I guess he, you get to make the call. We're taking this deal. And oh he, yeah, well yeah, and he we was on board about too. All. Yeah, and my manager, and and also my lawyer. I had everyone was already sort of ready to go. I just hadn't had a chance to utilize them their their powers. Yeah, right. Yet, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was it was amazing to like to just suddenly be in like playing in that in that game, and then I just yeah. like that couple days. Yeah. From, yeah, from when I, like, I did, was finishing, the, putting the finishing touches. But they, you know, that's the way it was at the time. I, mean, I, I was lucky. I don't really think that really happens much anymore. The specs don't just sell. Like, they usually get packaged. And it's a whole longer process. When you read about a spec, you know, being bought, it's not usually not just the script. But it's then like, Rights oh. of Men sold too, right? So it, like, happened kind yeah. of, well, like, like boom, after, boom. after I sold that script, that's when they start throwing you out there into general meetings with people. And they want to meet you. And Scott was one of the first people that I met at Universal. And we, you know, shot the shit just like we're doing now. And uh, and he was like, do you have any other, you know, specs that, you know, lying around? And I was like, well, I do, actually. I have this other one that I wrote, which I really, you know, like a lot. But I don't I sort of undersold it. I'm like, man, my agent said it's sort of not ready. He's like, well, I'll, I'll read it. You know, maybe we could make it ready. And I was like, sure, why not? And so it got sent to him and like, yeah, like a week later he had bought it. Wow. And then the, both of those are on the blacklist. Yeah. So you had two scripts on the blacklist in a year. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. <laughs> right? Yeah. And the blacklist was... for people listening who don't know, there's a thing in, the, in Hollywood called the blacklist, which are like un best unproduced screenplays. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. And now it's like a whole behemoth. Now I think they... They do other stuff too. Like they'll yeah. help you develop a script or uh -huh. it's like a whole company now. It's like an incubator. Yeah. Look, yeah, that was, those were, those were heady times. And so but... you, have you, and have you worked pretty steadily since then? I mean, there's, there's always ups and downs for screenwriters. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I worked pretty steadily. There was a period, uh, pr like prior to straight out of Compton where I actually, I worked at Fox for a year, like under contract, they had this writer's lab. I remember that. Yeah. It wasn't you... a lab. It was like a writer's room where they had six action writers and six comedy writers in rooms. And we sort of were, the intention was to develop original scripts and help each other write in, in a writer's room style. And then we would all go each and write our own script. And I think I, I went, I did that because maybe I was a little worried that things weren't, I mean, I was still working, but it, also, when you're starting out, like your fee is, is lower, it kind of gradually inches higher the more you kind of deliver and can get more jobs. 
And this, I don't know. I think there was some frustration. I had, I had gone out for a bunch of like, this used to happen more too, to me where I would go and pitch on a project at a studio that apparently was a job that they wanted to fill. And I would go in like multiple times and they would give me notes and I'd go and pitch again. And then, and they would never even hire anyone to write it, which, you know, according to WGA, they're, they're really not supposed to do at all. It's sort of wrong. But if writers are really putting in all this time and effort to get a job, that job should actually exist. And sometimes they'd use writers like in the brainpower writers come in and pitch a whole bunch of stuff that they maybe would use, you know, or not, or maybe use for another project or pitting writers against each other. They would all pitch and then maybe they'd sort of make a new thing based on it was, I was in that lower level of, you know, being thrown into the shark tank with other writers where it wasn't necessarily leading to jobs. And then I did this, so I did this Fox thing. And after that, it got much better. I think because of that or just because of time did its thing? Yeah, I think I just, there was one job I had at Universal that I think they came to me. It was a magazine article about like, it's probably really dated now, but it was about a hacker who was like targeting a group of young people and making them do things by hacking into their lives. And so I came up with a pitch and like pitched it to the president at Universal and he really liked it. And I got that job. And sort of from that point, I was able to maybe, I think, rise above a lot of this uh, kind of bake-offs that they call them, where I would just like, there would be an open writing assignment out there and I would go in and throw my hat in the ring and go and pitch multiple times. And it was really stressful and, and I hated doing it and it rarely led to a job. But now it's sort of at this point where someone like knew who I was or I'd sort of written enough that like my name would pop up on a list and they would come after me and maybe even exclusively sometimes. And similar was straight out of Compton. Like I didn't really have to battle against other writers. I was lucky enough that like, I knew this guy already and he sort of thought I'd have the right voice for it. And I was like, cool. And had a meeting and then suddenly I was doing it. And you're doing it. And then this is uh, to bring things full circle straight out of Compton gets made. Paul Giamatti is performing your lines. You're weeping. Then it be, then it gets nominated for you get nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. Like, yeah. How do you find out? Like, did you, how, when did you when did you start to know that it might be possible? And then how did you find out the news? Um, I think I knew it would be possible once. I mean, it came out in August, and then I think they start sort of having early indicators of awards, like in the fall and and December, and there was just sort of some buzz about it. And then I think I, then I got uh, nominated for a writer's guild award. And that was sort of like the first time that I thought, well, maybe like it could be possible. And I mean, I had, as you were supposed to do, there is like a, a campaign like that you embark on. And we hired a uh, Andrea and I might co nominee who we didn't write the script together, but we both credited. Yeah. Um, but we hired a, a, a publicist who sort of gets you out there and, the studio helps a little bit too and has screenings of movies that they think are awards worthy and you do a Q and a, or you go to little meet and greets and meet Academy members and try to get them to nominate you or, or you talk up the movie. And there's a whole like it's long a machine. process. It's a machine. Yeah. Did you hate it? Was it onerous or was it like a, a, no, an I mean, honor? It I mean, was, it was exciting. I mean, it became my job for a while. 
I didn't really do a lot of work. There's all this campaigning to do. And in some way it seemed, you know, a little bit weird, but once, I mean, once it actually, it worked, I mean, I don't know if it, we got the nomination because of campaign or cause I mean, you never really know. That was such a weird year for the Oscars anyway. I mean, there's all this Oscar so white controversy. Oh, right. And yet we were like white and yet we got nominated like for the black movie. Right. And this year it seems to me it's, it's completely different. There's so many people of color and like in the SAG Awards last night, you know, it's great. And I think it just, I don't know if it's just like the, the industry or the Academy was as racist as everybody said, or there just weren't a lot of roles that year. And this year there are. I feel, but, I mean, you know, I, there, there are definitely improvements to be made, but if you're thinking about the country as a whole or the world as a whole, I feel like Hollywood's, well, maybe, maybe that's naive. I feel like Hollywood's friendlier than most businesses yeah. and communities to minorities. It doesn't seem to me like, it's never seemed to me like a super, uh, racist yeah. place. So I know it has its I mean, history. I know it, 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 it's, and also like, I can't really say, I mean, I'm a white Jewish guy, right. screenwriter, which is just so, such a cliche. Right. And I know that it is harder, like for there's not a lot of female directors. There's less, you know, female or people of color, uh, directors. And well, and also I mean, like the executives, like the people who actually yeah. make decisions about what gets made and like how you, like, that's the part of it. Like, you know, mm -hmm. the gate, the gatekeepers. Um, yeah. But I mean, and the thing is like, I remember that morning when, when, I mean, I was up at five, when I used to announce it at five thirty in the morning and I was up watching the nominations come in and I, yeah, it was a completely insane, probably I doubt I'll have a more peak moment in my life. So what you're that. sitting in your living room watching this? Yeah. And it was cold and it was dark out and I think it was like, I had a blanket around me and I was just watching and, <laughs> and it was the last champagne. We were the, we were the last name mentioned, you know? So I totally thought it was kind of over by then, but then, yeah. And just knowing in that moment that like, I think I was even just more happy that I would be going to the show than like even the fact that I had been nominated. I'm like, I can't believe I get to go to the Oscar. Like, but going know. as a nominee is better than going to the show. Yeah. Yeah. All that. I just, I just knew that it was going to be a crazy, like fun ride. Yeah. Up after that point. And I'm like, you know, I watch the Oscars every year and always had. And so, yeah, that was definitely, but then literally like an hour later, you know, I, we're, on the phone with our publicist and doing interviews with various press and all they wanted to talk about was Oscar so white and yeah. why, how do we react to that? And why wasn't Trader Compton nominated for best picture? And why were we the only people nominated? And we were like the white ones. And we, and I remember like the, that started happening and then we sort of stopped that we're like, wait, we were like, we need to have like a plan. We need to know what the hell to say. We don't want to make it worse. We want to sort right. of address this in a good, positive way. And like, what do we say? And, what, and so we had like stopped the interviews for like an hour and like planned just some like, cause that's keywords. a, that's a tinderbox. Like that's, that's a oh, tough yeah. situation to be in. Cause suddenly you're, you're like the, the, um, You've got to be sort of the moral arbiter of the whole situation. Yeah. And like what we had, we were the voices for that movie, like the only people. And I really mean, I think it should have been nominated for best picture and it's a real shame that it wasn't. And that was sort of a bitter grape to swallow along with it. Like so happy that it happened, but then so many people were disappointed at the same time. Yeah. And it also it like reinforced everything that was going on in this narrative. Right. Of, you know, racism so what about the show itself you get you well first of all what did you wear 
I think I remember texting you. I was like, what are you wearing? And you were like, I'm wearing. Yeah. Oh, luckily. I mean, I, I have a a friend who's like a stylist and I think I call him after this happened. I'm like, I don't know. What should I do? Should I rent a tuxedo? Should I (laughs) buy one? And he was like, let me make a few calls, you know? And then he like that, that day he then he's like, yo, yeah, I know someone at Hugo boss. And they're, they said that they would give you all, they would dress you in exchange for you. Like, I don't know. It was this whole thing with yeah. like, uh, but, uh, yeah. So that's what, yeah. And so you he go was. to the show, you're in a, like, how does it work? You get nominated. Like they send a car for you. You have to have a pass. Like, well, you know, like there's yeah, a, cause there's they, a whole logistical, it's a security lockdown outside of the theater and everything. Like you've got to, yeah. You gotta the show studio with- provides like, you get like a, like an escalade for the night. I'm sure with, I guess maybe depending on like how famous you are, maybe they'll like really turn it up more, but yeah, you get a car and you get a driver and for parties you're going to, or the, they send you passes and yeah, they, they send you up Highland. Yeah. I remember like, yeah, you go through like, there was like five security checkpoints. It was insane. Then you and walk you, the red carpet. Oh yeah. Who'd you see? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have any, like, do you have any, like, are there any moments from the night that like stay with you or like you're in the men's room, like peeing next to George Clooney or like something like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. There was, t- I actually, it was funny cause I went after that night, I totally like wrote, I always write notes to myself on my iPhone in the notes section. And I wrote one was just like a list of everyone that I encountered that night. Cause I just wanted to remember. Yeah. And yeah, one was, I, I, after the show, you go from the theater and you go up to wherever the governor's ball is up a bunch of escalators and I was riding the escalator with Steven Spielberg as one does. And I remember like, yeah, that was my way. It was funny. Cause I mean, I'd gone to other parties leading up to the Oscars. I remember at one, uh, it was like the UTA party, which is my agency. And there was tons of celebs there. And I was talking to this guy from universal, like a president at universal. And he told me, he's like, look, he's like, this is, you can talk to anyone you want here. And you really should. He's like, just anyone you want to talk to, say I was nominated straight straight out of Compton, and like, just do it. Like, who knows when this is going to happen again? Right. But you, I encourage you to just talk, literally talk to anyone you want. And so I did, and I used that and talked to like tons of people that I always wanted to, and it worked. It's all I'd have it's to do. It's a good entree. Say, it's a good entree. Like, yeah. By the way, I was nominated. For- I wish. Uh, yeah, I, I almost wish I could just use it for life, but I can't. I never. <laughs> I never do. It was just in that situation. I remember once I, when I was at the Oscars, I, I ran into like Louis CK and I was like, I mean, I love him. And I totally like gushed. Like, I think I embarrassed him. Cause I was just like, and I was also pretty drunk after a while. Like, <laughs> yeah, during the sure. show. and also no, everyone's starving when they brought out those girl scout cookies at one point, like people really were chowing this. You're so hungry. Yeah. Your blood sugar's plummeting and the booze is just hitting you. And I remember until I was like, I'm just like, I love you. I love everything you do. And you're like, you inspire me. And he was like, Oh, okay. That, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> like, that was like, wow. I, Let I, go of my leg. Let go of my leg. Yeah. Well, dude, that's exciting though. That's a great life experience. Yeah, it was. And what are you working on now? Um, right now I'm sure I've been working on this, uh, a feature for DreamWorks or maybe, the, maybe they're just called Amblin now. Anyway, that Steven company. Spielberg had the, yeah. the, the elevator or escalator ride paid off. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm adapting a, a, a book, uh, called the travelers, which is about your, you know, Chris Pavone. 
It rings he a wrote, bell. He wrote, also wrote a book called The Expats. Um, it's sort of like a, a spy, a grounded spy movie, kind of like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but more grounded about a, a guy who, who's a travel writer at a travel magazine, like a really high-end travel magazine, and he finds out that uh, that the magazine's actually a front for this international spy organization. So it sounds kind of kind of corny, but it's it's... It's good, and I've I've turned that in, and I'm sort of in the process of doing a quick like polish on it before they go to directors. So it seems to be going pretty well, uh, and I'm also working on this. Oh, the Amazon thing. Yeah, the Amazon pilot, which is about the Grateful Dead. Is it really? Yeah. Oh my god! Tell me about. That's it. why actually I that, I think I went to a Dead show with you. Like at the forum, uh, don't even get me stuck. Like my listeners know because I talk about the dead on this show oh, maybe yeah, yeah. too much, but like I just reread Dennis McNally's History of the Dead. Oh, yeah. Like this past, I, I, I like. And if you heard that, there's a documentary that just came out at Sundance that Amazon also owns by this guy Amir Barlev. It's a four-hour documentary called Long Strange Trip, oh. produced by Martin Scorsese, and it's awesome. I've seen it. A rough cover. It's really good. It's going to come out on Amazon. I think like a five or six part. Oh docu series yeah it's fantastic i can't wait but my my show is gonna be let's say my show with like uh is gonna be more of like an intimate like with actors like biopic style sure like half hour episodes like a limited, <sighs> limited series dude well that's so a awesome. lot of research that went into that too. Uh, yeah it's, it's killing me all this real life all this nonsense. real life stuff, but you're busy, you're making good work and you're doing it in uh, Hollywood after, you know, after all these years, it's all happening. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I try to stay uh, mindful about it. It's easy to get frustrated or bogged down, but yeah, I have to remind myself sometimes. That yeah. That's, like that's the thing. Like when you live here and you're in the machine and like you're doing these things and like, you know, the, from the outside looking in, you know, everybody, I think it's, it's easy to see it, um, as this gilded thing, but there's a lot of bullshit. It's work. It's a job. Yeah. Everything is, you know? And so, you know, that reality of it. And then, um, you know, I think every once in a while you got to step back and say, I'm in rare air. How many people get nominated for Academy Awards? How many people get a writer's guild nomination? Yeah. You know, you've done something special. Yeah. Then I just feel like I need to, I, I like to reachieve those kind of highs just made this like high as in like feeling high you know because it's i remember during that whole experience knowing that it was going to end and uh i'd go back to being a normal normal person <laughs> and i was like how am i going to deal with that you know and it was it is you do kind of come down yeah it's like the astronauts go to the moon they come home they're just fucking depressed yeah and they're drunk and they're all like their muscles don't work properly yeah and, and like, what do I do with the rest? I'm, I'm like 30. They I'm like, like 32. Themselves. <laughs> <laughs> 32. I went to the moon, but yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll talk to you. I mean, I'm, you know, we'll see what happens next. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's great to finally have you on. It should have happened sooner. And, uh, I wish you well with all these projects and, uh, with whatever oh, thanks, man. happens beyond. And, and you too. I can't wait to, to read your, your next magnum opus. All right, man. <laughs> all right. Uh, Hey guys, if you enjoyed this program, you can support it. Do you enjoy this program? There's a way for you to support it over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Your support is integral to the continuation of this program, to its continued ability to flourish.
You can also write a review of the program over at iTunes. That helps. That helps uh, new listeners find the show. It improves its ranking and so on and so forth. That is a tangible way to support the podcast. That was Jonathan Herman, the Oscar-nominated screenwriter of Straight Outta Compton. Very talented guy, friend of mine, and uh, it's been great to see him do well. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. His handle over there is at HermJohn, H-E-R-M-J-O-N. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. The music is from Kill Rockstars. Go to KillRockstars.com from other, or for more information. You know what I'm saying. Kill Rock or Kill Rockstars is the music label, and has offered up a, a handful of select songs from its artists for podcasters, very generously. This podcast has its own official app. The other people with Brad list the app. It's free. The app is free. It's the best way to listen to this program. Get the app. I'm telling you, it's free. It's a free app. Get it uh, onto your device when you do that. The most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. If you then want access to the full archive, you just sign up for a premium subscription safely and securely right there within the app. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything anywhere you go at your fingertips, including my conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strait, Edwidge Dantica, Hilton Owls, Jonathan Lethem, Susan Orlean. The list goes on. It's an abundance of uh, entertainment options. I know why the cage grill pees. I'm not going to do another flotation. I really don't think that's happening for me. Not anytime soon, anyway. You sort of, it does sort of remind you that you're just like, it's like you're kind of just a point of consciousness. In an infinite blackness. Just maybe a helpful reminder. That's what it feels like. You can't see anything. You can't really hear much. Just floating. Floating in blackness. There's a metaphor there, right? Alright, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Oh my god. <laughs>